We've also heard, and I'm going to now direct this at Vice President Biden. Um, I do not believe you are a racist. And I agree with you when you commit yourself to the importance of finding common ground. Mm -hmm. But I also believe, and it's personal, and I was actually very, it was hurtful to hear you talk about the reputations of two United States senators who built their reputations and career on the segregation of race in this country. And it was not only that, but you also worked with them to oppose busing. And, you know, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools. And she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me. I want to bring in Congresswoman Gabbard. Congresswoman Gabbard, you took issue with Senator Harris confronting Vice President Biden at the last debate. You called it a, quote, false accusation that Joe Biden is a racist. What's your response? I want to bring the conversation back to the broken criminal justice system that is disproportionately negatively impacting black and brown people all across this country today. Now, Senator Harris says she's proud of her record as a prosecutor and that she'll be a prosecutor president, but I'm deeply concerned about this record. There are too many examples to cite, but she put over 1,500 people in jail for marijuana violations and then laughed about it when she was asked if she ever smoked marijuana. She blocked evidence. She blocked evidence that would have freed an innocent man from death row until the courts forced her to do so. She kept people in prison beyond their sentences to use them as cheap labor for the state of California. And she fought to keep cash you, bail system in place that impacts poor people in the worst kind of way. this sort of woke uh, stuff that we're seeing now, all this intersectional stuff we're seeing now, it's a, it's we it's a weird like replay of what I of what they called back then multicultural and what they called back then maybe uh, PC right hmm. and and it it reminds me of that you know the the cliché played out Marx line of, of first as, tra as tragedy then as farce. Um, because it really is just like a replay in, in this very strange way. Um, and, and I think in part because the, the, the theoretical framework for it is the same. It's all this like Foucault, Derrida, you know, anti-material conditions reaction, right? That was discourse. funded by the CIA, which is, you know, something people don't even pay attention to. But literally the CIA funded departments to bring in th this kind of stuff because it competed with space with Marxist material conditions, you know, scholars. Like, you can just literally Google it and find it, that, that they did that. They did the same thing with art, you know, like Jackson yeah. Pollock and all the sure, sure. abstract mm -hmm. expressionists were funded by the CIA. Not, not directly. It's not like they did it indirectly, but they did it on purpose to crowd out the cultural field to kind of push out more sort of material conditions, Marxist point of views. So, it's since the 
sort of theoretical framework is the same, why would it play out differently? It's playing out the exact same way. And it landed us with Bush the first time, and then it's landed us with Trump the second time, right? Like the Clinton years gave us Bush, the Obama years gave us Trump. I mean, there's no... And so we're kind of playing the same stuff out again. And when one of the key elements of it if, that we wanted to talk about was, you know, this sort of weird outrage as a kind of weapon, weaponized outrage. Mm. Um, so I don't know where you guys want yeah, to Yeah, I mean, from I was there. pretty young. I was pretty young then, but I do remember it being a topic and being in the media, like multiculturalism and tolerance discourse. I've had the same friends since I was a little kid. But this year, some of them started playing with these other kids. I guess there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's cool making new friends and all, but they weren't like us. They were, you know, different. And I heard my big brother saying some pretty bad stuff about people like them. But they seemed pretty cool, and we had a pretty good time. So, well, maybe my brother doesn't know everything. Hey, Carlos, come on, we need you. Don't be afraid. Be your friend. In the middle of Ohio, like, it's a different thing, I think, than it is uh, in an urban place. I mean, maybe a lot of people don't even remember it because it's like, what's the big deal? But um, people react to it in funny ways. And um, the the funny thing to me about um, the political correctness discourse and um, intersectionality uh, right now is um, a lot of times I mention that, you know, I, I come from like uh, musically the hip hop world. I don't come from there. I've never really made any hip hop music, but that's my music of choice. And it's always funny um, that hip hop is very, um, I guess, unfiltered, right? And that's the merit of it, that it just tells you what it is. And, you know, it, it tells stories as they are, you know, with all of the, the, the grit that's inside of them. And it always confuses me coming into uh, talking to different people and like the sensitivities that people have that I don't have coming from that type of culture. And the people that they're trying to advocate for don't have the same sensitivities as them. You know, growing up black um, in America, you learn to have a thick skin, especially if you're um, made privy to kind of like the civil rights history. If your family comes from that, um, you learn to have a thick skin, but it seems like um, the whole discourse that I'm not engaged in online um, is kind of a protection of people with thin skin. And I find a merit in it and I find a lot of demerit in it. I, I, I can see, um, you know, uh, why people do it, um, that it's, it's a good instinct to try to protect people who are, you know, weak and try to listen to people's sensitivities and have empathy but it gets to a point where you are just kind of finding offense for people who either don't have offense or you're defending people in a way that um, disempowers them. Um, so that's kind of the negative results I see of the political correct discourse and some of the intersectionality discourse. And then when you learn that it has power, it does become weaponized. And kind of on a funny note, since you are you 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 grew up in uh the 90s and you know the uh, us in the 2000s um um one of one of the guys at work always asked me if i've seen the movie pc university pcu classic I, i've never oh, I, seen I, it 
I saw that ages ago. But you know, you could watch it, and and honestly, other than Nothing weird technological, you know, differences, like no one has a cell phone. Um, other than that, it's you could basically be like, yeah, this is exactly the same nonsense playing out again. Um, like state school campus. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's just like, hell no, we won't go. Like, this, this penis party's got to go or something like that. It, 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 it's just, which reminds me of that story I was just telling you about the, uh, I was telling uh, off before we started something that happened on my campus when, when I was, uh, a, I guess, a sophomore. Um, there was um, a dance that got canceled because it was heterosexist and uh, heterosexism was canceling i guess right yeah they were canceling the dance before cancel culture right because the cancel culture has been around forever right and and so it was uh sadie hawking's dance which is it was the idea is that it subverts the standard paradigm of men asking women out so in a sadie hawking's Mm. dance uh women ask men out right and so the dance gets canceled and there's no explanation for it and then the finally there's an explanation from the sort of uh and 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 this has something to do with the story we'll we'll unpack it later but from this you know uh african well black because he was from antigua he wasn't american right uh this black uh, students council president you know this man he canceled the dance and and so everyone's like but why did you do that it's like i i didn't want to but i i got complaints about how it was heterosexist and i figured it was too much trouble right eventually it turns out that it was like a white woman who like you know a straight white woman who like complained that it was heterosexist not one gay person complained no one was offended but this one person made like the black guys like life miserable and he just was like i am not dealing with this crazy white lady and that that's basically (laughs) something we're living with these days you know with all this cancel culture stuff so but the idea that that you know everyone said a lot of people after after the fact said well why didn't you just say no one was being excluded guys can ask guys out and women can ask women out it's just that the framework of this dance is that you know we want to break the standard guys ask girls out so it's like girls ask guys out and that's just the way that it was done but yeah so so you that could have happened last week in any any campus in other uh, bar in COVID, right? Like it could have mm-hmm. happened yeah. last week. But but you get this weird dynamic of of the person who is heterosexual, so it's not covered by that, who's white, telling this guy, this black guy, you have to cancel a dance. There's something iffy about that. And yet it's like the outreach got weaponized into canceling this dance. What reasons she had, I don't know. I mean yeah, I mean, conjecture. that's something we should like latch on to and go into deep more deeply because what, I psychoanalyze like, this lady. What are we doing here? Well, because I think I remember I remember people saying like Biden picked Kamala Harris as a woman of color, not for people of color or for women of color, but because the powerful affluent segment of the American upper middle class, which is his voting base, which who feel that that is the only right thing to do. And they really wanted it. Whereas the people they purportedly speak for are far less concerned and interested in the things that they obsess about than than they are. And so behind behind a lot of this stuff, I think, is the so-called PMC um, on the left. On the right, it's not the PMC that that wields the power. It would be maybe the petty bourgeoisie. But but on the left, you've got this affluent PMC class and they're they're sort of directing 
the ideological course of development in a certain respect. Well, I mean, if you look at her I don't know what you think about that, but... Well, if you look at her base during the primaries, I mean, it was just rich white people, right? Like, black people That's didn't what, yeah. vote for Kamala Harris. She, she pulled at what, like a Pete Buttigieg level? Because, um, you know, she was She was, she a was cop. the first one out. I mean, Kamala Harris is a cop. Mm-hmm. Wasn't that started by, by rich white people? It was black people who had been abused by her policies in San Francisco, right? So, and in California. So, yeah, yeah. Her, her, her being a, sort of chosen as a running mate was to make feel good those uh, white suburbans that Biden and Chuck Schumer love so much. Yeah, I that, think there's also an element. Oh, I think there's also an element of um, uh, the black conservative. Um, it's, it's because the black, there's still a, a strain of, let me not say a strain, but there's still like, um, you know, uh, still a history of black nationalism, you know, in kind of the South. So I think uh, Kamala Harris kind of appealed to that too. Um, and they knew. Um, that Kamala Harris was a turnout candidate. Um, it was gonna enthuse. It was. It was gonna basically um, the people who need they needed to get out that they needed the enthusiasm of. She was for that. But the intuition was false because she couldn't hold up in the competition. She was wasted. But it doesn't it. matter because Biden got most of that competition. It's just how do we get those people on the periphery, like white suburban women, right? right? I heard that uh, canvassing a lot. How do you get them? Kamala Harris was to get that vote. You know, she's a cool black lady like Barack Obama was a cool black guy. Um, And also you're talking about um, black conservatives in the South where a lot of the discourse is talking about, you know, um, we need to just support. We need to support black people. Um, We need to support black issues. And for a lot of black women and men it was um seen as you know they've already foregone bernie sanders that was the pick of most minority people and it was kind of a conclusion he's not going to choose bernie sanders as his running mate elizabeth harris or elizabeth warren Warren, sorry elizabeth harris might have had a chance whoever that Uh, is elizabeth warren um was really uh, a non-quantity in minority communities, she didn't get any minority vote. What about the Native American community? Um, I have no idea about the Native American community. That'll, that'll be so, uh, for a later uh, date. Can I, can, I, can I interject just a mm-hmm. small, interesting point? Isn't it interesting? I mean, and I have nothing sort of cogent to say about this, but isn't it interesting that neither Barack nor Kamala are actually like African-American? They're black, but they're not the descendants of, you know, African sort of that were brought over to the United States, right? They are both the children of of two black immigrants that came to the U.S. You know, in the 20th century, right? And it's kind of interesting that the Democratic Party chooses them as the sort of exemplars, even though they're not really a part of that community in a sort of contextualized mm-hmm. historical way, right? They're not they're the children X. of They're not Martin Luther King. You know, they're not like mm-hmm. actual people who sprung forth from that community. They really just kind of play, got placed on top of it. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't have anything, you know, 
Well, that's the lineage of inflammatory or I intelligent mean, to say about it. Just, I find it interesting that those are the people they chose. Because, I mean, to a certain extent, they chose them, you know, especially with Kamala. She, she was just pointed at and be like, you're chosen for this task because of your identity politics characteristics. I think uh, Kamala Harris did a good job of putting herself in the position to be chosen, too. Because, like you're saying, the flip side could have been he chooses Stacey Abrams, who does come from that lineage. Yeah. But they didn't want but, him. But he was... But he was really brutal to her on TV about not having, not choosing her. You ever, you, you ever see that clip? Mm-mm. She was on, it was on some show and, and he basically was like, yeah, it's not you. And you could see like on her face, just sort of the, <laughs> the reaction of not being chosen. Uh, I, I could find it later, but you right. know, I, mean, I, I let's, remember But let's back her. up. Let's, unless yeah, yeah. you want to finish that thought out. Yeah, let me, let me finish the thought. I think it's also like when you're talking about a vice president, it's about the aesthetic of the vice president. Like when Donald Trump picked Mike Pence, it's because he fit the part. Stacey Abrams doesn't fit the part of the oh, vice the president part? with Joe Biden. Um, she's a black lady, but, you know, she's from the South. She's not the cool black lady. She's actually about business. She's about power to an extent. And Kamala Harris is just... She is like the equivalent of uh, Hillary Clinton as, you know, Bill Clinton's wife. That's what she's very presentable. That's what I was getting at. She is for the suburban whites. Yeah. But also people you have to like why she was the pick besides Elizabeth Warren, because you could have gotten the suburban whites with Elizabeth Warren is because you also have to look at there is a suburban black class as well. It's not just suburban whites that are picking Kamala Harris. There's the suburban black. There's the conservative black people that are right, for right. But what Kamala I'm- Harris because there's this feeling of we want to get along with the power structure more than fight it because they're conservative. And that's kind and of they the they finally ethos. made it, they think. Yeah. But I mean, going back to where this is all coming from, I mean, my intuition there is they wanted Kamala because they wanted to assuage their their bad consciences about their privilege. They'd like to say that privilege is whiteness instead of wealth. You know, they share whiteness with workers so you can put workers down over whiteness, but they don't share wealth with workers. Mm -hmm. So you can't mention that. And so what's a upper middle-class PMC person going to do? Well, they're going to pick the good looking uh, black candidate, but they're going to pick the good looking black candidate so that they can say that they're not bigots. And so, I mean, maybe there's something there like black voters identifying with a, a black vice presidential candidate but i'm my intuition is that it was more for the white ones because because of this way the dnc is working and so just to back it up like if if we're talking about left the left ideology that's going on in this sort of period of time i mean you got the basically left neoliberals who are left on social policies but you know their austerity they are ideologically for austerity and all of the nasty things used to be associated with Republicans almost exclusively. And, and that's people like Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and Barack Obama. And then, then you have the socialist left, which is a totally different thing. And that's, you know, Bernie Sanders is the light version, but if we're focusing on the left neoliberal, the neoliberal portion of the so-called left, I, I would put, I would be willing to bet money that the people behind these ideological tendencies are, are the upper portion of the professional managerial class and not broad appeal among the people who are purportedly represented by those people. So let me pose the question. Um, 
do you think that um <clears throat> most of the discourse um like the negative discourse that you see kind of the uh you know woke discourse or pc discourse however you want to call it um does it come from the neoliberal left or the lib- liberal left or does it come from the um socialist left or people who just who call themselves the socialist left i mean i i think it's it's liberals right because they have nothing left i actually i would like to backtrack a okay. lot Sure. Um, so let's, let's try this out. So, so I went to college in the mid nineties, right? And the one big difference between what I experienced and what you guys experienced is that from 1989 until 2008, socialism lost and you would not get any socialism, any material conditions in any university setting, really you know, in any serious way. Sure, there was David Harvey doing his thing, but no one was paying attention to him, right? right? It was after the fall of the Berlin Wall and before the subprime mortgage collapse, Bill Clinton, third way Democrats won. Mm -hmm. Neoliberalism won, capitalism won. It was, you know, sol invictus, you know, like that's it. This is what we got. It's the, you know, the end of history. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, And so like Fukuyama said, so when I was in college, any attempt to appeal to class as a, as a sort of oppressive issue or, or any kind of, you know, oppression related to class, you were met with substantial sort of critique and derision, you know, because that lost. And the only issues that mattered were these identity politics issues. So, so the left had to latch on to these identity politics issues and let go of class completely, or they would be ridiculed and mocked because they lost, right? So, so and it wasn't until 2008 and the collapse of, you know, subprime mortgage collapse, which showed, you know, the, the sort of real problems in neoliberalism, not just from like the way that it was crushing people's lives, but actually internally as its own engine was undermining and destroying itself as Marx said it would do, right? So for that whole period, you have a whole, what is it, 20 years of people uneducated on everything related to class and hyper aware of everything related to identity politics issues. Mm. So all issues of social justice, whatever, are about race or about gender or about, you know, sexual orientation or about, you know, so, 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 I mean, so, so I just wanted to kind of give that, that, that setting, right? Sure, sure. There was a guy in my, in my, in my school that had, yeah, sorry, so wait, just, there, just there was a guy in my, just, yeah, yeah, <laughs> sorry. No, no, <laughs> go, go for it. This, this is how it goes. I was, I was just going to say there was this guy in my school, which is funny because now he's a total like liberal, like, you know, he's a, he's a lawyer, his wife is a doctor. He works on labor rights stuff, but he's very much like, uh, you know, a yuppie. Um, but he was the only guy, he had a table that he would set in front of the dining center and he would give out like the communist newspaper and literally every single person in the school made fun of this guy because they, you know, communists lost. What was he doing? It was 1995. Mm-hmm. It had been six years since the, uh, since the, the, the communists lost and, and neoliberalism was on the rise and the economy was, was booming and, you know, and everyone was going to be rich because of the internet. So, so that's like very much 
the mindset of, of all these people who went to school between at least 1989 and 2008. And there's, these are not, I mean, they're old, but they're not that old. They're still around messing around with people on the internet, right? And they're running the Democratic Party right now. Right. So, so okay. So I was just trying to feedback a version of what I'm getting from you to see if I got you right in terms of like a claim you're making. Um, so you're basically, so you're, you're basically saying that the history of the left between basically 1989, um, the end of so-called socialism in 2008, when neoliberalism went bankrupt, like literally the, the history of the left in that period shapes the current ideological orientation of the so-called left in terms of its background. And so they're trying to catch up. Class was off limits for all that time. Almost. What was it? Uh, you know, that's a, that's a lot of time. And so, and so that's why the left is the way that it is because deeply ingrained is in it is, is everything that it had to do in that, in that 20, uh, 20 year window. And so the current power players, let's say on the so-called left, they're basically still living in the mental space of the nineties. And you see that with, yeah. I mean, it, Am I getting you to right? A very, to, a, to a very large extent, yes. I mean, I'll give you, I can give you examples of like how this played out, you know. Uh, um, so, I'm a lawyer and, I, and in my constitutional law class, um, we spent an insane amount of time on affirmative action because my school was involved in some affirmative action lo uh, lawsuits and, you know, the, the constitutional law professor thought that that would be really interesting. And I remember this one time we were in the middle of this affirmative action discussion and, and I brought up the point, well, what about class? And they were like, well, if we do class, then it's going to bring a lot of white people in and then it's going to mess up the whole racial thing. And I was like, well, can't we just kind of account for both things or whatever? No, blah, blah, blah. Okay, cool. And I said, well, aren't we just then what's our aim? Are we trying to have a society where there's a bunch of poor people, but the poverty is evenly distributed among all racial lines? Like, aren't we just basically redistributing oppression, but maintaining it if we do that? Like, I mean... And what was the answer? And, and when I said that, it was like I had farted in the room with a hundred people and everyone heard it. Everyone turned around, looked at me and they just went, literally avoided, I mean, it was like almost like Zizek would have had a field day because it was as if I had said nothing and then went right back to talking about why affirmative action is good. Though it was not addressed, like literally it was not addressed. I, I literally, if I had farted in the room and everyone looked at me and then they just started like going back to what they were doing. It was really weird. But yeah, it was like that, you know, almost like they couldn't see it. There was almost like a, a, a mm. it was this object that psychologically they could not see because they had nothing to deal with it, you know? So Yeah, it's like they don't have a concept for this thing that you're presenting them with. So it's just, you know, in, in you know, failure to compute sort of thing. I think if it's they also, had accepted it, it would require changing their identity. Right. Right. Which is funny because if we go back to, um, I don't think we've discussed it on, on, on our podcast, but, um, I've I've talked to I've talked about it with other people the Kerner report right because the Kerner report points out that this is more of an economic problem the Kerner report is about um, the long hot summer which is in uh, 1967 when there were riots just like this summer um, race riots um, and um, what the conclusion from the Kerner report was is because there was no ec economic opportunity in you know the um, 
basically the cities and the urban areas of the United States. And also that policing was very, and there was a cultural component to it. Like there isn't enough black representation in policing and the, and the police don't have enough sensitivity training and that type of thing. And it seems like the only thing that was latched onto from the Kerner report was the cultural aspect of it and kind of pushing much more further forward with this time period between the 90 or 89 and 2008. It's also interesting because I see it as a time of extreme nationalism too. Um, America was, you know, like uh, the, the cultural center of the world. We were exporting culture at the time massively. Mm -hmm. And um, it seems like yeah, East Germans drinking Coca-Cola. Yeah. Like one of the wake up calls for my generation, because one of the, uh, like um like the the forming moments was 911 and i think one of the first the wake up before even the 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 wake up that came from 2008 was that we don't exist in this world alone when uh you know terrorists you know uh knocked down the twin towers um and i remember by the time uh Kerry was running an election and i was in high school and we were having debates um, and, um, no, this was after Carrie when oh, it was in 2000, when Obama was coming up with like his plans, when he was starting to run his election and they were talking about like pseudo socialism, right? They were talking about actually building up green jobs and how different countries actually, cause this was around like, uh, medical care was kind of like what they were bringing back up. And we were also talking about, um, uh, I guess, um, the military and how we interact with other countries. And um, it seemed to bring back this multiculturalism that was lost. And we had to kind of account for the idea that, you know, economically we are impoverishing other countries. And that's kind of one of the reasons that they lash out. It was kind of like a look back at imperialism too. And it seems like the time period that you were forming was just this storm of, you know, a lack of economic analysis and a lack of real multiculturalism. And it got framed up in this American sense of civil rights discourse and around only identity. And it took two things for that to be kind of shaken. First, the realization that we're not the only identity on the planet with the 9-11 attack, or it was two... Not yeah, 9-11 attack. And then it took the 2008 uh, housing market crash to realize that there are classes inside of America. So those two things had to be broken down. And I don't, I think that, you know, with the discourse that's going around right now, why it gets so, you're not seeing the same result as like the fart in the wind that you got. Why it gets so combative now is because you do have two sides that are arguing, you know, the economic repercussions of what we do and the true multiculturalism and the historical like imperialism that we took on both inside and outside of the United States. If you know what I'm saying? Well, yeah. I mean, what what's remarkable about your story, Mark, is that um, those people didn't take offense. They just couldn't even cognize really what you said. But I think in the interval now, people people now, the way the left is tuned, they would have taken offense and they would have just eviscerated you, no? 
Yeah, I, I mean, the, the immediate thing to do in that situation, which is what happens to me, is that I just get called racist, right? Like, it's just the immediate reaction whenever you bring class is that, oh, well, then you're racist, right? And it's just like, You're a class why? reductionist. No. Yeah, because, and it's like, no, I mean, I'm not, I'm not racist. Uh, I mean, I mean, I am in the sense that everyone is because, you know, we have all this bullshit plugged into our heads by society, but, but no, I mean, I'm not, I, you know, and, and they're like, well, well, how can you believe this other stuff? It's like, well, because, you know, I think Oprah is oppressed in some ways, but her life is fucking easier than mine. I mean, I'm sorry, you know, Yo, like Oprah she's can got buy a her billion dollars. That's the difference. What? Oprah can buy her way out of her oppression. That's well, the wealth difference. Yeah, I mean, power, and she has wealth, so she has power. And typically, you yeah, she's she's got power, power and, and, and and I don't. You know, I mean, and, and sure, there's there's shit that like affects her that doesn't affect me. But if I you doubt do, it is what I'm saying. I doubt. Yeah. It. <laughs> I mean, generally, probably no. She's probably in a bubble that completely a force field made out of money that protects her from all the stuff that poor black people would have to deal with if she's not um, she's paying top scientists to work on it right now <laughs> but know? um so so you brought up nationalism and and nationalism is, is to me is interesting in that i think nationalism it, it it actually changed in structure because it changed in in context historically so the the original nationalism that starts with like napoleon you know is very different from the nationalism that we have now. The nationalism that we have now is always intrinsically fascist or proto-fascist because it's an attempt to go back to an earlier period as a way to maintain a previous identity that never existed, right? So you're so yeah. So back then it was progressive, and now it's it's and now it's because because it's like a make America great again, you know. Mm. Like it's always this kind of like proto-fascist kind of because the the origin. So by by first world war, nationalism was definitely on its way out. It was it was class mm. has become a much more important issue mm. than nationalism. But you know, people strikes in England would get workers from Germany to go to England to strike with those workers. Mm. And workers in France would go strike in Italy. After First World War, all those national boundaries became really important again. And that, that, that sort of solidarity across national boundaries got really like broken down compared to what it was prior to that war. So, so the, that nationalism that First World War recreated. And look at how that First World War ended all the multi-ethnic states like uh -huh. the Austro-Hungarian Empire, right? Mm -hmm. Like it sort of ended that kind of uh, end of, you know, the 19th century sort of weird uh, multicultural empire <laughs> and brought about the nation state again into a much more cohesive cultural entity, right? Right. Um, which is why we see things like the civil war in Spain. Part of the reason was that Spain is not cohesive, you know, culturally. There are many mm -hmm. different mm -hmm. cultures there. Uh, and so the re the sort of return of nationalism as a kind of reactionary movement is, in a sense, proto-fascist, and it mm -hmm. always kind of is. Yeah. And so that's what we when when the U.S. gets very nationalistic, as happened after September 11th, mm -hmm. it became very weirdly fascist, right? And we mm -hmm. haven't really gotten over that. That was there was a very for people who were a adults who were paying attention there's a marked difference between the united states 
of the late 90s mm-hmm. and the United States after September 11th. And, and I remember having conversations with people, you know, uh, one of my, my professors, she was a psychoanalyst um, uh, and she lived in New York and she said, this is really scary. Like she, she was the biographer for like Hannah Arendt, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so she, this is one of the things that she paid attention to. Um, and, and, and we were talking about how it was scary because the, the language that was being used after September 11th was very much like a sort of 1930s German language. I mean, it didn't mm-hmm. turn into that, but you can see how from Bush we got to Trump, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 and so that is, I don't know how I ended it there, but anyway, that's... Can I ask a question then? Yeah, um, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry if I'm, you know, talking too much. Tell no, me no, this is good. Um, <laughs> so, like, I know you weren't of age when Reagan was president because that was a very massive economic cultural shift in america also yeah i was i was not old enough to really be paying attention i think clinton like i remembered the first george bush administration you know the 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 Mm -hmm. herbert walker Mm -hmm. but only really like the war like oh i remember tomahawk missiles were used but not in Mm -hmm. like a serious way clinton is really the first uh politician that i paid any attention to and I, and I will embarrassingly admit that I was taken in by this guy who seemed like he knew what he was doing, you know? You and everyone And I was else. wrong, you know? But 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 I remember that. But Reagan is, is kind of... I'm not that old. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm just saying, like, his, so it, for both for both of us, it's it's historical then. Right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Experiential. Because, um, like, it seemed like, um, you know, Nixon and Reagan, you know, were the... They were the end of the civil rights movement. And it, was, it seemed like a, that was kind of like the project. And it was the end of the economic emphasis that was their project um, in America, as far as class is concerned. Because, um, you know, kind of what they mapped out is that that was when, um, you know, um, I guess uh, the carceral state was on the rise. And their whole idea was we want to jail the blacks and we want to jail the hippies. And we want to destroy the union so we can disempower both of those groups that are on the rise. Um, and the communists. Yeah, the I communists. mean, of course, the communists. But the communists were being destroyed since, you know, um, Roosevelt. Right. Yeah. So that project was already almost done. They needed to continue the conservative project. In a way I mean, they that, got it. They got it done. Oh, yeah. And I think Clinton was the culmination of that. That was the neoliberal end of he was the cherry um, on top. civil rights. You know, the Rainbow Coalition did not succeed. And then Clinton comes in and has a sister soldier moment where it just pretty much annihilates any emphasis on any type of civil rights movement that's based on um, any multicultural dynamic based on class. The Poor People's Campaign ended with the end of the Rainbow Coalition. And that was Clinton. Yeah, to an extent. I mean, it, it's, it's also the, the how how poisonous you know the 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 entrepreneurial solution is yeah. right where where don't worry black people you will be fine you just have to be entrepreneurs and 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 you know and and once you have money everything will be resolved and that's that not mm-hmm. looking at the fact that no matter how money gets distributed you know in this in the system there's always going to be people who are being oppressed you know but right. but but clinton came in with this sort of I mean, it's almost like an evangelical Christian story of like, you know, the, the, what is it, the, the, the gospel of, of ab- abundance or something like that, you know, that prosperity, that story. Faith. prosperity yeah, gospel. 
Prosperity. Yeah, there you go. So, so the idea that that you know you're going to to pull yourself by your bootstraps and everyone will be rich if they work hard enough or something. I don't know. Right. Which, which completely doesn't pay attention to any. But that's old in America. That's that's a puritanical strain, right? You make it to the kingdom of heaven because you're a hard worker. And how do you know that you're a hard worker? You make money. That that comes. That's as old as America. But it does. It did rearise in the '90s when greed became good, and. Kind of to your point about the the that I, I think all of this feeds into the idea that we had a proto-fascist strain of nationalism in the United States after 9-11 that just became extreme. And I think the current left started out as a reaction to that because um, those were my first protests. Right, right. And that was my first introduction to, OK, let me start looking at all of the different components of why. There are people in America that think it's okay to invade Iraq. Um, and then I started looking at it in the basic paradigms of a kid, but it's consistent today that I used to always say, like, the reason why you're seeing terrorists is because we have it. They don't have it. They want it. And we don't want to give it to them. So if you're not going to share with people, if there isn't a... Uh, you know, a, a cohesion culturally amongst poor people, in my mind, then you're going to have to fight them. And that's the only way you're going to protect what you have. So I, I think that's kind of if you don't have that connection of uh, that true uh, class multicultural connection, you're just going to end up with a proto fascist nationalism or, you know, um, I, I would say more protectionist than, you know, fascist because it's always been in America, you know, well, here, here's the thing. I grew up in what is basically a colony of the United States, right? So my relationship mm -hmm. to American force and violence is very different from someone who lives within the boundaries mm -hmm. of the empire, right? Mm -hmm. um, though I consider the Black South to be a separate nation from the U.S. that gets mm. sort of colonized to this day, right? If you look at mm -hmm. like percentages of population, you can literally draw a line and create a black, you know majority state in the south in some area you know and it's contiguous right it's like where mm -hmm. people grew food right because that's where the plantations the black belt so in some in some way if pretend that that's a separate country and it's been invaded by the u.s for the last hundred and plus years and that's you know kind of similar to what would be you know what's going on in puerto rico since then right mm -hmm. and and i mean you know People don't know this, but at one point, uh, the U.S. had basically sterilized about one third of Puerto Rican women without mm. really getting, you know, their consent. It was just like, there's too many Puerto Ricans, just sterilized women. So, and so, they did this in Puerto Rico. So, I mean, th there's a history of really like horrific stuff done down there. And, and I see how the propaganda that the U.S. sells makes people not realize that or not accept that kind of stuff. But I also see, you know, so so my relationship is kind of, I guess, different, right? I, I I mean, also being Latin American, I know that what happened in in Congress, you know, a couple of weeks or I guess a week or so ago, is something that the U.S. has done to every single Latin American country. They have that kind of like storming of the of the head of mm -hmm. you know power of a, of a particular country by like crowds of people financed by the CIA, pushed by US intelligence, 
I've seen that, you know, and, I, and I'm sensitive to it because it has happened in every single country in Latin America at one point mm -hmm. or another. I mean, the most recent being, I think, uh, Bolivia, right? Where right. they basically funded a right-wing, reactionary, anti-indigenous, Christian, you know, fascist, you know, government to, to kick out uh, Evo Morales, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so, so I mean, who put uh, uh, Bolsonaro in power? It wasn't Trump. It was Obama. He, mm -hmm. he basically mm -hmm. got Dilma Rousseff, you know, mm -hmm. kicked out of power and Bolsonaro came in. I mean, so, so even the sort of left-wing, you know, not really left-wing, liberal, you know, sort of Americans function as basically fascists and the rest of the planet. Hmm. So, because yeah, yeah. that's the kind of government that they put in place. I mean, they, they killed Salvador Allende to put in uh, Pinochet. I mean, it, it, it's just like a constant thing. So, I've never not seen the U.S. as basically a force of like conservatism in the rest of the planet, right? But that's because of my vantage mm, right. point. I think that that was made apparent in 2011 for the rest of us. Right. Yeah. You know, I mean... And I think 2000, I mean, the, the Afghanistan war was should have, you know, uh, how many million people went, uh, you know, sort of went against the Iraq war, like in, in protest, millions of people and the right. US and, and, and the powers that be said, no, 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 we're doing this. Like, you know, fuck you, right, you right. can, we'll put some fences around you and you can't protest in these sort of mm -hmm, special yep. areas. And, and that's that, you know? Yeah. You guys because, have said a number of things. I want to back up and pick up on so like i do want to sort of emphasize and clarify that what we're talking about there is imperialism and the different ways that americans register what imperialism is because i think what that is saying you mentioned marco the the d distinction between uh late 90s and post 2001 or post 2008 is the realization by a lot of uh, north americans uh who don't have the connection to these other places on earth that america is an empire and um but I want to also sort of add to the, that remark, we got to make it explicit, but I don't think it's also, I also don't think it's just a, a government that we put in place, which dominates the world the way, so for instance, like you had direct military domination. I don't know. I'm not a historian of Rome, but for example, Rome, the way, the way that the American empire works is primarily economical through dollarization and spending American dollars in other countries, getting them to accept those dollars and use those dollars to buy bonds. So that it's just the circulation of dollars, which props up the American dollar, and everyone's dependent on on us for that, for their basically for their reserve currency. Um, but yeah, I think that imperialism is what it's about, and and a big problem in America. I mean, in the '60s, people talked about imperialism because they were interested in struggles of national national liberation. You know, they're you know people mm -hmm. talking about Vietnam and stuff. But other than that, I mean. The American left is usually internally uh, focused, aimed at itself, and it, it doesn't address these. Basically, this is about imperialism. And the case you mentioned with Iraq and the protests, that's super interesting. I remember, I mean, that for me, that was my political awakening. I was like a junior in high school. And, um, and I think that that's the sort of foundational moment for the current configuration of the left. Like, people want to invade... Uh, these Middle Eastern countries, uh, the neocons and so forth, and and you know, it was supported by all the so the Democrats who are taking office right now, and and you know, all the more people came out in opposition to that than than had happened in a long time. Millions of people all over the world, and and what people like Bush were saying and Tony Blair was, 
know, this is why we're going to war, because look how great it is. You can express your political liberties. And so they just totally diffused the, the left's opposition, which usually takes the form of protest. So it just became meaningless. And so, you know, this is something to think about if we're trying to think about the current constellation of the left in America and how, how it plays out. I mean, it's oftentimes protests, but, you know, taking offense and being offended is also, you know, going back to the sort of beginning topic, that's, that's a weapon that gets used on the left. And I think it's important to note, just to wrap this up. That's where I wanted to um, yeah. wrap it back around to was that um, kind of the lack of the class analysis is the reason why the Iraq protests failed, right? So there wasn't this dynamic of, you know, why is this happening? Oh, um, there was like on the periphery, this is because of oil extraction, but it wasn't a... Con a, con a it, there was no real conversation of who is trying to extract this oil. It was kind of, oh, George Bush is as the reaction. It wasn't that there's a class dynamic to this. There's a class of people who have to get oil out of the ground. There are a class of people who have to um, trade on these oil futures and that type of thing. And um, also like in uh, uh, black discourse, um, it failed because there was no push for like when you're talking about the civil rights movement of boycott. That was the real power of the civil rights movement. When you're talking about sitting down at lunch counters, that's a display. But it wasn't that people were going to these lunch counters to buy things. They were occupying the space so that really they were disrupting the business. Right. And there was no thought process in both the uh, in in the uh, Iraq protests of disrupting business as usual. Nobody was able to do that because that's the only effective way. And that didn't rise up again until uh, 2008. And the problem now is that they kind of, the multiculturalism is also lacking if we circle it back to like Kamala Harris being chosen because it's not about black people. It's about, you know, um, like the American black liberal. That has to be chosen, because if we had a class analysis, we would, again, start talking more about uh, the global south and, you know, the experience of imperialism, which is the discourse that is lacking. And when you bring that up, people call you racist because you're not putting to the forefront uh, the African-American. When which is a totally nationalistic way to frame it. Exactly. It's just an American obsessed with Americans and it totally overlooks the and it overlooks political dimension. The idea of disruption, economic disruption. This is just a cultural project. This isn't an economic project. And the only part of the economic project is give money to black Americans, mm -hmm. which is just going to go back into the American empire. And it's right. not going to empower black people. It's just going to maintain the system. And you're going to have a black overclass that joins the or black ruling class that joins the, you know, white ruling Basically, class. Yeah. And you have a multicultural ruling class and you have a multicultural um, working class yeah. and that's fine by them and when you bring up the idea that there needs to be a class component to this you're going against the idea of that multicultural ruling class and since you're only talking to the ruling class or you know the the petty bourgeois who want to be a part of that ruling class um, you're basically telling them that you're against multiculturalism because and that's why they call you a racist. That's why they call you a racist. But they're using that. They're using that. That's like a weapon. Yeah, that's the so weaponization. Being offended is like a weapon in the in the struggle.
Well, I mean, it, it kind of reminds me of um, there. I have I have like a couple things I want to I want to talk about from what you guys said. You have the, the floor. The, the way the way that they get weaponized, it reminds me of how in the Matrix there are agents that get possessed by the system to fight mm-hmm. for the system. Because mm-hmm. sometimes when you're talking to these people, you're not even talking to a person. You're literally talking to a program that is running in them that was inserted mm-hmm. in them. They don't. That's why they tilt when you kind of don't run through the standard like <laughs> process, right? right? right. You, they're like, wait, wait, no, 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 no. That's not how this this sort of movement goes i say this and then you say that and then i say that it's like no 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 i'm not republican that's why i'm criticizing barack obama but i'm not for trump Th- that does not compute you know like it, mm-hmm. and, and you get that that you get that breakdown because there really are until you get unplugged you really are an agent of the system i mean and that that's that's a weird you know funny metaphor but i think it's true so one thing that you're talking about class analysis about the imperialism is very important because people get uh, completely just sort of deceived by this nationalism bullshit. For example, like the UK has entered into wars solely because the, the royals have money invested in countries. It has nothing to do with anything that the UK cares about. They have no geopolitical interest. It's literally they're going there to protect the money of the royal family. Now, the same thing happened in the US with Iraq. We don't have royals instead. We have billionaires and titans of industry, right? We got into Iraq for no geopolitical interest. We got into Iraq because of the interests of a bunch of rich people in Texas, you know? Mm-hmm. And, 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 and that's why we went there, to get some oil fields. And, and, and so we engage in these wars because it's not really we. It's it's literally the U.S. military is just a mercenary, you know, sort of core that the rich people in this country have hijacked the state to enrich themselves, right? I mean, they are willing to spend $7 trillion in a war to make a trillion dollars because that mm-hmm. trillion dollars goes into their pocket and the $7 trillion came out of your pocket, mm-hmm. right? So, so that's, you know... The, I mean, it reminds me of that Gramsci uh, line about like the, the, the state is where the sort of historical unity of the ruling class happens, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what we got. Like the state is basically how the rich people discipline us internally and how they go to other countries and use our capital base and our power and what we provide them to go do the same thing to other people in other places. Mm-hmm. So So that's why... That's why nationalism is necessary because you cannot have the people in Afghanistan, the people in Iraq calling the poor people in the US and be like, yo, we're in this together. It's those guys at the top that are messing with the both of us. Mm-hmm. And that's where nationalism mm-hmm. really comes in. It's the same way that racism in the US comes in to keep the white workers from uniting with the black workers, mm-hmm. right? It's the same, I mean, they're analogous sort of, uh, uh, you know, procedures or, or, or strategies. And, and and so, coming to the, the sort of weird way in which we're told there's a black-white dichotomy in the U.S., which I find kind of strange considering that Hispanics are the largest sort of minority group in the country. They get mm-hmm. kind of faced out of the discussion. No, 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 it's, it's a black-white issue. And, and, and so, one of the really interesting things about that and one of the things I get called racist a lot is that 
when people bring up this issue of uh, reparations, they say, well, we got to be really careful with that because you can't just, what, how, how, what, what does that mean? How are we going to carry that out? Like you say reparations, but we got to give it content because unless you have actual action steps, you're not doing anything. You're just saying a word over and over again. So are we going to cut a payment to all black people in the U.S.? So should Kamala Harris get a cut, even though she's not the daughter of, of you know, of right. someone who used to be a slave? Or but should uh, what about the Hispanics that live in 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 the southern southwestern portion right. of the U.S. who basically got screwed over, you know, when the U.S. took over that land that was not the U.S. Are they getting reparations too, or are they not? I mean, are we yep. gonna create a, a, a sort of permanent Hispanic brown underclass? and rise up all the African-Americans above them. I mean, it becomes very complicated. So immediately, if you question any of that, I'm racist. Like immediately, you're, oh, you're racist because you don't want reparations. And I'm like, well, no, I, I, it's not, I don't want reparations. It's, I want to know what the hell you're talking about. Like, what are we, what are we doing? Like, because right. you don't just, you, well, you know, you we want can talk about it in general, but we need to know specifically what we're talking about, right? Like, I want everyone to have health care. I mean, because I think there's you know, a crosstalk. I think when, when when most black people talk about reparations, they're talking about the end of these class dynamics. They're talking about the end of underclasses in general. Um, I think, like, that. that's why, like, I don't see black nationalism as a positive force myself. People often put it as a position as you have black socialists versus black nationalists. And I... Can I interrupt you for yeah. one second? Because there was one thing I wanted to say. Go for it. So the, the history of reparations, from what I understand, I'm not an expert in this, but it really actually started with the idea that colonial powers needed to make reparations to colonial nations. Mm -hmm. So it was on a collective level, which is a very different dynamic mm -hmm. than the idea of doing reparations on an individual level, right? Mm -hmm. So like if the UK gave Jamaica money for all the stuff they took from Jamaica mm -hmm. to help all of Jamaica go up. That's a very different story from the U.S. is going to do a one-to-one, -one, like, mm -hmm. you know, individualist sort of plan, right? And they both operate from very different ideological points of view. Anyway, so, that, 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 so, so that's part of the reason I think it gets so problematic in the U.S. Right. too. And I think also in the U.S. it gets problematic because it does become a black-white dichotomy. And I think in the minds of most black people, it is an economic issue. It's like we have impoverished communities. It's not about impoverished black people. It's about these communities in these regions have been, you know, uh, I, I, I guess they, they have been, their, their, their wealth has, their, the wealth has been sucked out of these communities. And what that brings up is I think a lot of the problems like comes with, Reconstruction. And it comes with um, one of our American heroes, Martin Luther King. He talked about racism in the South. Segregation was one thing, but you had de facto segregation in the North, which was economic segregation. They don't have to. You can't. There's a law in the South that we can fight. That's easy because that's kind of an identity question. It's a law based off of your color. And then in the North, it's not a law. It's just that these impoverished communities are kept impoverished. And guess what? This is where black people are located. So if we're actually talking about the idea of reparations, we are talking about it as a function of imperialism internally and externally. So we need to address where things were extracted 
And I think reparations could include what happened after Reconstruction when the North extracted the wealth from the South, because you still see those those same paradigms existing where the South is more impoverished than the North and the West and the, the coast, because after the Civil War, the spoils of war was we're just going to take the wealth out of the South and they're going to they're going to pay us back. And we need to reckon with both the extraction of wealth that came from slavery and the extraction of wealth that came from reconstruction. We just need to right. reckon with extraction and, in general. And the really perverse thing is that when you say that the North extracted wealth from the South, in a real way, what we mean is the North took the black workers out of the South. They literally were like, these are no longer your slaves. Now there are wage slaves. Right. Mm-hmm. Like but they also, took them to the factories because they needed them. You, you also know? impoverished and, and the black people that wanted to stay f- as farmers in the South. That was oh, also yeah. the result. Well, crippled the South because yeah. the South was an economic contender. And on the one hand, that's good. But on the other hand, we have to admit that there are bad things. And I think the liberal has such a one dimensional view that if you just say that anything bad happens, then like you were saying before, if you criticize Kamala Harris, you must be a Republican. If you say anything about how the, what the North did to the South is bad, then you must be a, a rebel flag waving fool. But just a second, though, I think one thing we need to pick up on is, like, I agree that is you're bringing out sort of the parochialism of the American left when it just is concerned on reparations domestically. We should also be considering the way that the American um, capitalist class has used the state in the Western Hemisphere initially and then later in the rest of the world to as a basically our public our public service infrastructure is a private police force for the capitalist class and and if we're going to talk about reparations and good faith then we should also talking we should also be talking about unfucking the countries that we've fucked mm-hmm. um which are basically de facto colonies even though we'd never say that cuz we're supposed to be a republic but the problem is though I think um you tell me what you think but it seems to me that 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 is an apt point against the the American domestic so-called left. It basically is totally blind to imperialism. But but on the other hand, it, even that observation keeps a, an aspect of the American left, which I think is a problem. And I, I mean, to maybe take this as a challenge. I'm curious to hear what you say. I mean, we must. It seems to me that we have a false expectation or a false view of things if we expect ever for these rights to be, or these wrongs to be made right. Like mm. what would America do to Jamaica in that example you gave? Like, you think the ruling class is ever just gonna come to their senses and say, oh, all right, you know, let's calculate all the shit we've stolen from them and then we'll add some interest for good measure and then we'll we'll write no, these no, wrongs. No, no, no. no, that's never I, gonna happen. I, it's only I gonna operate... happen through conflict. It's only gonna happen through conflict. And so I just wanna highlight that a we, lot of y- the people who talk about reparations, they don't want to, they don't want to destroy and rebuild the order in a, in, in a revolutionary way and make a new order. What they want to do is to keep the order in place, but just to tweak it so that it's just. And that's never going to happen because the order, mm. the order is a monster that lives on the blood of working people throughout the whole world. Not just Americans, not just black people or Latinos, mm-hmm. but working people. All right. And so so, so I, I, I have a couple things about that. So the first thing is... To me, reparations, the reason it really is going, it it fails is because in a way it's means testing Mm -hmm. all over again, right? It's a standard sort of liberal means testing ideology of like, but but it's using a racial line to do the means testing. 
But mm-hmm. all these means testing services, they all fail. Why? Because there's this other group that's pissed off that they're not getting mm-hmm. it too. You need universal services. Mm-hmm. You need, I mean, what? I mean, if we provided mm. housing, healthcare, mm-hmm. and living wages, and and free education for everyone, what the fuck is the need for reparations at that point? At like, what is it? I mean, well, I mean, to write reparations for what? Wrongs. It's a, you know? it's a narrative. It's a, but you've righted the historical wrong when you do that. That's the historical wrong. Exactly. Is, Exactly. I mean, yeah. and so that's why you want to have the means testing ideology because that allows you to not do shit. That allows you to keep extracting from the rest of the world. Precisely. And means tested in the United States. And yeah. it kind of gets to the point, how do you do that? I think China's not the best example, but instead of going into a country and just ex- extracting their wealth or just paying them tribute because you've extracted their wealth, again, um, that's a means test. You just build their infrastructure. It becomes a relationship. It becomes, even if you're going to maintain it as um, exploitive, it's still exploitation, but there's different types of exploitation. Even if Americans could come to the point where we're like, we still want your money, we still want our empire, but we're also going to build you up as part of the empire, then it would be a different dynamic. If we were building up other people's economies and not just dollarizing Mm -hmm. them and extracting Mm -hmm. from them, then you would have a much different relationship, a much different result. And it would be not less exploitive, but less, it would be more equitable, which is not the best situation, but better in my opinion. To to, to me, the problem is that capitalism, you know, is like a, you know, I mean, this is, the old metaphor, but it's like a cancer that needs constant growth, right? And so capital is always looking for green fields, always. And and so mm-hmm. when, you know, first, you know, you get it, the factories in the cities, you know, then they move out to the suburbs because they change the regulations. Then they move mm-hmm. to a different state because they change the regulations. Then they move to another country because, you know, they can do whatever they want there. And so there's this sort of mining extractive point of view that capitalism has. And so any relationship will eventually become one in which they have to start extracting as much as possible, right? Mm. Because there is a sort of need for, for growth. And, and, and so, that, I mean, that's what the Monroe Doctrine was really about, right? Like, this is our mm-hmm. greenfield, Europe, get the fuck out. Right, mm-hmm. like if I'm cursing too much, let me know. I just no worries. You know, no worries. Uh, uh, so, but it, you know, Europe, get out of, of the Americas. They're ours, right? And mm-hmm. and so the U.S. has been a destabilizing force in in all of Latin America for its entire history. I mean, mm-hmm. where I am sitting right now was Mexico, you mm-hmm. know, and Mexico, and there was no reason for the U.S. to attack Mexico. Mm-hmm. They just wanted this piece of land because, you know, John Marshall in the founding of, you know, like the first, you know, Supreme Court justice or the most important Supreme Court justice. And one of his opinions talked about how the, the, the nation was going to stretch from ocean to ocean. Mm-hmm. And we're talking mm-hmm. about the original 13 colonies mm-hmm. and they were already talking about how they were going to go all the way west and take the whole thing out. Mm-hmm. And at that point, it belonged to France and to Spain and, you know. And he was already like they already had the signs that they were going to go all the way out. Mm-hmm. So we so, almost I mean, went into Canada. Is, also, we forget is, about that. What? We almost went into Canada. America oh, yeah. invaded Canada. So yeah, yeah. I mean, they're, they're, when I I lived in Michigan, and when I lived in Michigan, they talked about how the the only reason Canada is not a part of the U.S. is because Michigan had a very uh, cowardly governor who 
the Canadians came down, he they oh. attacked in, in Michigan and they beat them and then he didn't go to Canada, not realizing that that was it. That was the extent of their army at the time. So if mm-hmm. he had gone to Canada, he could have taken the whole thing. Um, so Americans, you know, imperialist Americans are like, oh, we could have had all of that. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just this, like... <laughs> Well, America did. <laughs> this Canada, way of relating to the world where, like, you want everything, you know? In 1812, uh, they went up to uh, Montreal. Mm-hmm. It has happened. That's what he's talking about. I oh, am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, 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 I mean, it's, it's, uh, I don't know. And I, I mean, being, being from, from Puerto Rico, it, it puts you in this very strange situation because, you know, people uh, imagine that we would be the poorest country in the world if it wasn't for the U.S. involvement. But really, uh, it doesn't bear out. It would probably be significantly better off without the U.S. there, based on like the history of Puerto Rico and what went down when the U.S. came in, which was pure extraction, right? Mm-hmm. It still um, is. Yeah, yeah. But it, I mean, it, it still is to this day. But so, so a quarter in Puerto Rico is called a, a peseta. Mm-hmm. And a peseta was the basic unit of money in Spain until the euro, right? And so, it, signifying, it seems like, historically that the exchange rate was a quarter was worth one peseta now it was worth more when the u.s got there but when the u.s got there they fictitiously devalued the local currency mm-hmm. to force to to make the dollar stronger so that people who were coming from the states could just buy more mm-hmm. stuff mm-hmm. buy more land at a, at a fictitiously low rate so and and one of the things that happened i mean Disaster capitalism, I'll give you an example from the 1800s. So when the U.S. gets there, there's a hurricane. It trashes Puerto Rico, right? So the, all of these federal funds were supposed to go there to rebuild the, the farms and everything. And instead, the governor of the up. island, who was an appointed U.S. you know governor, withheld all the funds, held them, mm. allowed the economy to completely collapse, then gave the funds to American mm-hmm, interests mm-hmm. so that they, they could go in and buy all the, yeah. all the mm-hmm. land. Classic. And, and they eliminated all the, all the food that was being grown in favor of growing just sugarcane, mm-hmm. which eliminated Puerto Rico's ability to feed itself, which it used to have had until that point, right? And so it became, because sugar was very uh, expensive at the time, but obviously you can't live off of just sugar, right? But I know some Americans are, who live off of what? sugar. I said, I know some what? Americans who just live off of sugar. <laughs> so, so, so it basically destroyed agriculture in Puerto Rico on purpose and took the land away from all the Puerto Ricans and they devalued the currency on top of that. So it was like a quadruple whammy of like a, a hurricane mm-hmm. devaluing the currency, you know, like it was just, and, and so... Yeah, then the country got fucked. <laughs> so, Economic hitmen, right? Yeah, there's, but it there's was a few, disaster capitalism at the beginning of the 20th century, end of the 19th mm-hmm. century. That's um, that's interesting. Um, just to go back a second, like the, you mentioned, China in the states, mm-hmm. and say what you will about China, there's plenty to criticize. But I think it's true, and it's worth uh, emphasizing that, like, the the model. I mean, the Chinese are concerned with economic development, whereas the American approach is one that's extractive and keeps countries from developing economically. But you don't have local capital investment, which makes um, local capitalists, which develop local economies. On the contrary, it's a dependency relation. And um, recently I was reading Michael Hudson's book, Super Imperialism, and he was saying that the novelty, the world historical novelty of the American uh, model 
is basically like the way that the the way that the capitalist class is using the American dollar and the state the state becomes like a financial tool of uh you know sort of economic warfare whereas you know in classical european finance capital you had banks merging with industry and stuff but they were just doing that capitalist stuff with a currency but the state and the um capitalists were not identical the in- interesting thing about america is that the state starts to act like a finance capitalist mm-hmm. And because everyone ends up using the dollar, everyone needs that medium for their own capital development. And so, you know, you're in this unique monopolist position where, I mean, you the, the American state, it's not only taken over by, by capitalist interests and so forth, it is like a giant finance capitalist that gets the whole world dependent on it and makes sure that they don't develop. And so, again, say what you will about China, there's plenty to criticize. But they do seem to be more interested in um, economic development in domestically in their own country. They lifted a billion people out of poverty. So, I mean, it's not like they're not authoritarian, but they they are committed to something, it seems. And and so, yeah, I mean, this is just a massive blind spot when I think of the American left and its sort of narrow focus on domestic issues like and total total the way it totally ignores political economy a lot of people think like we just need to right the wrongs relatively speaking for americans or you know tweak this or tweak that or maybe somebody needs a check in order to pay for the damage done to them to make them whole but but the the implicit assumption there is that we don't actually need to found a new order which is just we don't need to struggle to change the basic parameters and um i mean that's just that's just not that's not a radical thing. And so when leftists say stuff like we need reparations or something, I think what you're basically conceding or admitting is that that we don't need to, we don't need to go back all the way down to the foundations and change the basics. And and I think, you know, Mark, when you say there's that failure to compute moment where you say something about class and it just totally goes over people's heads or or it pisses them off, um I think basically what you're doing is you're you're challenging those basic parameters, and a lot of people don't know how to deal with that. But I think that's the internal limit or the shortcomings of the way the left is right now. They just it's like it's blind to political economy and it's blind to inter- the whole international dimension. I mean, I think there's a lot of stuff sort of operating when that happens. I mean, one of them, and just just a quick aside, is 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 that people need to feel that they can do something. I remember mm-hmm. this this scene in um, uh, Sorry to Bother You, the Boots Riley movie, where they're sitting in like a restaurant and, and one of the characters says like, you know, it's cool that you're telling them all these things that are wrong, but you got to give them something to do because if you don't, they're just going to forget <laughs> about it and keep doing whatever they're doing, right? <laughs> and so, so, so if I criticize Democrats, which in the last 20 years have probably been worse for Latin American than Republicans. Um, people were like, well, what am I going to do? Vote for Trump? And I said, well, that's, that's not really the, that's neither here nor there. That's not the point I'm trying to make. What I'm trying to see, do is wake you up to the reality that, that the guy that you're, you're sort of turning into a saint and you're having this like cult of personality around, I mean, be Barack Obama or Biden or whoever, or Elizabeth Warren, um, the, these people are terrible. 
Like, you know, I mean, look at that interview with Hillary Clinton. Like, we came, we saw, we we murdered, basically. Like, yeah. you know, and, and, and she said, we, what was it, we, we, we saw, we came, he died or whatever. Yeah. I mean, that's we a We came, we saw, he died. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a sociopath. I mean, she started laughing at the end of saying that they went in somewhere and killed someone. I mean, Well, that's why people are calling the contemporary Democrat thing intersectional imperialism, because basically the left hmm. is fine with imperialism if it's intersectional. I mean, the, yeah, the yeah. left, broadly speaking. So, so, so that's the way in which the cancel culture, the, the outrage is, is actually part of the sort of propaganda and, and, and sort of ideological programming, right? Because if you criticize any of these people, there's a ready-made identity politics thing to throw at you to get you off the scent of the real damage that this person is doing, right? So, so in a way, the culture wars have been weaponized by the reactionary capitalist element. That's a big claim, but I'm pretty sure that that's what's going on. I mean, because no one is really served by going and attacking someone for saying something mildly like sexist who is 80 years old, you know? I mean, like, yeah, the guy is 80 and he says something dumb. What's the big, you know, like, yeah, tell him, no, you don't say that, you do this. But you don't have to get all worked up. You don't have to get all angry. You know, there's a kind of emotional aspect to it that is almost, it seems almost rehearsed in a way. Not that the person is rehearsing it, but but that they got fed like, this is how you deal with Mm -hmm. this. You have to get Mm -hmm. this angry and you have to create a kind of blanket that doesn't allow any looking outside of that space, right? I I don't know. Programming is a good way to put it. What? It's it's Well, it's very dogmatic. So an example I often tell people, like, I, I grew up very Christian and- one of the things, it's a small thing that, that was a crack in my religiosity. I remember when I was in seventh grade and we were in gym class and I met the first kid I ever met who said he was atheist. And then there were a bunch of Christian kids that were like, why don't you believe in the Bible? And he was like, I don't believe in the Bible. So they, he kept on talking about all the things he didn't believe. And all they could say is, well, it's in the Bible. The Bible says this. And he was like, but I don't believe in the Bible. And I was sitting there thinking, you're arguing wrong. He doesn't believe in the Bible. So you can't use the Bible. Mm -hmm. And I see liberals in the same, doing the same thing. Well, they're begging the question. They're assuming a premise or a presupposition holds absolutely. And they're not recognizing that with their interlocutor that that assumption or premise simply holds no weight. And what that highlights is that, you know, they, they take that assumption for granted and they assume that it's self-evident. And that's just the limit of their cognitive parameters. What they actually need to do is give an argument for that assumption. That should not be an assumption. It should be a conclusion that you've argued for. But I mean, the question is why? Why is it so important? I mean, and it's probably not hard to answer, but like, I'm thinking about the way you're saying, Mark, uh, Mark, the the way that this gets used as a sort of piece in an ideological system, sort of economic system struggle. I mean, the point is that those assumptions, like they're not going to be argued for. You'd better accept them. And if you don't accept them, you'll be policed. I think it just becomes easy because in America, we're very comfortable. We're products of that imperialism. I am the beneficiary of the comforts that come from that imperialism. And it's kind of like with the the storming of the Capitol, right? I hear a guy talking and he's talking, he's, he's empathizing with, you know, uh, you know, the, the white nationalists, right? And he's saying most of them don't believe they're racist. And to me, it's like, 
I don't give a shit if you don't think you're racist, you're racist. And it's kind of like in America, everyone would say, I don't see myself as an imperialist. And the rest of the world is like, I don't care that Mm -hmm. you don't see yourself as an imperialist. You are an imperialist. Mm -hmm. And if you actually start listening to the other side, you have to start reckoning with either I am an imperialist and that's bad Mm -hmm. and I need to take, take steps to end imperialism. Or you need to say, I'm comfortable with this imperialism and I'm going to take steps to maintain it, mm-hmm. which are two different projects. What and you're I, saying is take sides. Hmm? What you're saying you is take, take a sides. side. But I mean, it, it's, it's something research. That, that is so pervasive, right, in this culture, in the United States. Like when, you know, something like, I don't know, the bombing of that embassy happened, you know, the, 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 it's like 200 people from the country died. And there were five American deaths. So they just reported five American dead. And mm-hmm. as a footnote, 200 other people died. Those people don't really count. They're not American, right? Mm-hmm. Like when, when, when the hurricane hit Puerto Rico and in Mar- Maria recently, um, and the numbers came out, like basically about 5,000 people died as a result of the hurricane for, for very varying reasons, right? Mm-hmm. Um no one cared. And then all of a sudden people started saying, no, 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 but they're American. It's American lives. Mm-hmm. You know, you have As to, though that and all of a sudden that count. really mattered, right? Like it, yeah. it, it's this weird, it, but it's just there. It's constant. Like the media just feeds the American lives thing, right? It's like, mm-hmm. uh, uh, I mean, how does, how does the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki get, get justified? Oh, well, we would have lost, you know, a hundred thousand American troop, which is, it's a lie, but whatever they say that, right? And, and But how many Japanese died? Like, what's the calculus? How, how much is like a Japanese life worth versus like an American life, you know? Well, I think but in the case people, of a war... Sorry, go ahead. People, but people, this is how people justify these things, right? In, in, in wars, like, well, if we had gone in, we would have lost 5,000 troops. Mm-hmm. So, we had to kill 230,000 you know, 230, mm-hmm. of them. And it's like, oh, so, so like 5,000 Americans are worth more than 238,000 Mm-hmm. dress dinners or what you know like, like crazy but this is how people in this country conceive of these things and i don't know like not being being mm-hmm. and not being from here it's very jarring to me when people say it you know whereas like people just sort of say mm-hmm. it not even like they're not even thinking about what they're saying they're mm-hmm. just literally just saying it well that's the truth of nationalism in a way you know on the left you're not allowed to be a nationalist and i'm not saying that in the sense of some you know resentful person who secretly wants to be a nationalist i'm just saying like nationalism is an absolute no-go with people on the left but i mean let's face it they're basically nationalists because i mean the ideological view is narrowly focused on uh, the united states of america or north america or even more broadly speaking the anglophone world i mean how many People can deeply identify with the rest of the world. And, and even if they subscribe to a cosmopolitan liberal ideology, basically the idea is all human lives are equal, but this one's mine. And mm-hmm. so you end up thinking like this case, like, you know, it's a pity for those Japanese uh, civilians, but we're going to lose more. And so the implicit assumption is that these lives are more important than those. And so it's, it's justified. But I mean, I would still want to distinguish, though, between the case of a war. Not, I mean, it just seems like in the case of a war, that's a strategic concern. Where, because the goal is to win the war, but but when you're talking, but it's a little different when you're talking politics with um, a North American left liberal or ne- left neoliberal, and they and but, they do that because because it's a little different. I mean, they're they're 
operating under the assumption that that um, you know they're not at war. This is just normal and stuff. And so it's even. I would say it's even worse in that case because what there's because first of all they're assuming that what's going on is not like an imperialist warfare kind of thing, and it is. And secondly, they're saying that you know it's okay. I'll be quick. I'll point out where I would say the similarity between you know, the left discourse and war is similar is because it assumes that you are the moral um, authority in the situation. So when you're talking about a war, why you're able to kill 200,000 to save 2000 American lives is because those 200,000 are despots, right? And removing them to save 2000 American lives, you're saving 2000 virtual lives versus 200,000 despotic lives. So they are initially putting less value on those lives and they're doing it under a moral guise same way as when you're talking about you know um fuck the white working class we're going to talk about the the black you know uh impoverished class is and we're going to sacrifice the white working class because they're despots they're deplorable well, they're racist anyways you know yeah they're racist anyways and these black people they're good people you know and which you is know, like a cartoon version of politics. I mean, that's just crazy. It's so, a good, bad dynamic that allows you to do that. It's the moralizing. And what people need to realize is that you are, if you be, if you talk about things in a class dynamic, you become a man without a country, which is important until you realize that you are a part of a class and you're not a part of a country. You're not going to get to the point where you're able to you know, fight along those class dynamics. Or a human without a country, let's say. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I agree and disagree with the sort of not categorizing war that way. Because in in that particular case of, of the, the war with Japan, that logic got used to basically lie about what was really happening, which is not that uh -huh. they were concerned about U.S. casualties, but rather they were concerned that the Soviets were going to get yep. to Japan and the U.S. was not going to get to Japan. So they were concerned that the Soviets were going to have this, this country under their control mm -hmm. if the U.S. didn't drop the bombs and, and get there first. Mm -hmm. They were also concerned with being able to use those weapons in a way that signaled to the Soviet Union, hey, we got these weapons, we're going to discipline you from now on, which is what they did until the Soviets got their own nuclear weapons right because mm -hmm. they would fly you know like dr strangelove they would freaking fly a plane over the soviet union back and forth with nuclear weapons pointed at the soviets but we would claim the soviets were the aggressors not the u.s mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. even though you literally had annihilating weapons mm -hmm. pointed at them all the time and they didn't have those weapons pointed at you so so the the problem with these logics is that they're so easily like twisted around to justify you know Atrocity. Up shit, right? The atrocities, right? So, so, I, and, and, and here's, here, here's the thing. Once you realize that you have these sort of same class interests or same, you belong to the same class as like 99% of the planet, right? And you start feeling, oh, we're in this kind of together. It's not that you deny your sort of ethnic or your cultural no. reality, right? I'm not any less sort of Puerto Rican because I feel more connection with, you know, uh, uh, an Algerian laborer than I do with like, you know, the guy that owns 50% of the land in Puerto Rico. Right. So, right. but, but, but I, I don't have to deny that culture. Right. I, I'm still a part of that 
right. you know, particular world. It's just that you have to start realizing where the oppression in our world is coming from. And those are the people who are basically asphyxiating us, right? And Not the, the guy in Algeria. And it's what? also on a cultural aspect, it, it, it you know, it, it's a, it's a barrier to even expanding like, you know, culture, right? Because this becomes Puerto Rican culture. This becomes black culture. This becomes American culture. So then you can't even share it with the Algerian worker. Which yeah, and it, it becomes this nonsense of like cultural appropriation, right? Yep. Where like it's another another realm for the, the sort of cancel culture. It's a fun one. You know, I like that one. White blood cell defense <laughs> mechanism against, you know, class consciousness can kick in, right? Because it's like, oh, you, these white people learn how to make tacos from scratch. That's fucked up. It's like, why? They're just right. some white dudes making They're just tacos fucking from tacos. scratch. They like tacos. The, the, the problem well, they attach is, a religious significance to that cultural but, object but you, called a taco. But, but the reason the cancel culture is so important at that level is because it, it's an obfuscation of the other issue with cancel culture, which is not that, but rather when a rich person goes and takes something from a culture and, and starts exploiting that to their mm -hmm. own benefit mm -hmm. and not kind of engaging in a more symbiotic relationship with the cultural thing that they got. For example, if I... If someone goes and says, oh, this hip hop stuff is great. Let's take it, not allow black people to do it and profit from we'll it. Commodify it. But in mm -hmm. that case, you'd have to talk about actual economic exploitation. And I think the new lefty types post 60s don't want to talk. They don't actually want to get their hands dirty with the nitty gritty of that stuff. Because, I mean, think about the word cultural appropriation. Appropriate means to make it your property. Now, let's not take that as a metaphor. Let's take that literally. I remember the first conversation I had. After spending years abroad during my studies, I got back to Massachusetts and I was sitting next to a young uh, woman who was at a private liberal arts college in Massachusetts. And she was just high as a kite on this uh, new left uh, intersectional ideology. And it was just it was just spilling forth out of every orifice. And she was talking about cultural appropriation. And I said, you realize what you're saying is that culture is your property. And no one else is allowed to take it. And so you're basically framing all of this up in terms of property. You know, if you want to do that, that's fine. But you should own it, make it explicit. And maybe you should actually consider that what you're talking about is economic. And, you know, this is about commodification and exploitation. This isn't about, like, you know, whose turn it is to, to ride on the on the, you know, like, mom, Billy didn't wait in line, take his turn. It, this isn't fair. I mean, basically, that's the logic behind this. It's not fair. But the point is, like... There is no parent watching out over us to make sure that this is fair. These are economic systems of exploitation. And so I think we really have to actually go down that path. And so when it comes to things like, you know, that is, you said, a class perspective, when you adopt a class perspective, you become a human without a country. And, um, and I think that's really important. It helps also to distinguish new left and old left ways of thinking. And the old, old left way of thinking you know, was the idea that you're a human without a country from a class perspective, that doesn't mean you identify deeply or can empathize deeply with, uh, you know, some worker in global South or in Southeast Asia or something. But what it means is that you understand that these, these nationality things and local parochial cultural issues um, are ways that, that, that um, capitalists divide people up in order to exploit them and make profit off of them. And, and I, and frankly, I think it's worse. I think it's worse when a liberal di disavows that dimension and ignores it. And, you know, like 
if a liberal says, you know, we had to bomb uh, Japan because blah, blah, blah. I think that's worse than when the American military says it, because when the American military is doing it, that's a war. I mean, in war, the point is to succeed. But what is the point of a liberal saying that? It's just to, it's just self-deception. No, it's not to succeed. It's it's just self-deception. It's just to justify their okay. behavior. And and so, I mean, you'd have to be a fool, I think, to reproach a political economic bloc for, be, be, for being hypocritical in a war, because all mm-hmm. that matters in war is to win. You know, and that's, that's the way war mm-hmm. works. But when someone mm-hmm. in their life just says, you know, mm-hmm. we had to do that because blah, blah. It's like, no, we didn't. And, you know, th- these distinctions. But at that they, point, at that point, the war was won, right? Like there mm-hmm. was no doubt whatsoever that they, the war had been won. It was just an issue of what the division of the right. world was going to be like right. at the end of the war. So it's sort of, in a sense, it ceased being a military operation. And it really was a civilian sort of government operation. It was like what they wanted the world to no, like, I don't think so, though. for their economic interests. It was a right. geopolitical well, operation. Like, how will the lines be drawn vis-a-vis Russia? And I'm not saying that that's morally good, but I'm saying that's not in a moral, that's not in the register of morality. Morality is a sort of individual thing. That was a geopolitical, military, economic thing. So, I, so I guess I wanted to talk about how if you go back to the sort of 90s, you know, and, and that sort of group of people that we had mentioned before, like Derrida and Foucault and all of that, they were very concerned with notions of hierarchy and, and, and in a way like it's ironic that I think Derrida wanted to blow up hierarchies, but really their philosophy and their work has been used to actually establish hierarchies. Yeah. So because the, the, the people who, who are doing identity politics rely very much on all this mm-hmm. framework, whether they know it or not, right? It's the funny thing. But so you get fake dichotomies created, right? Where black, white, uh, or or man woman, and so what we've gone is this sort of thing where well white people are bad, therefore black people are good. So instead mm-hmm. of having white people on top and black people on top uh, bottom, you. we should have black people on top and white people <laughs> on bottom, right? And and so men are bad and and women are <laughs> and women are are, mm. are good, right? No, so we should you. have women on top and men on the bottom, right? And, it, and so well, again, so this you is like- get turn taking like children like it's my turn my yeah but but so so you get you you you're not doing away with hierarchy you're just recreating hierarchy changing the positions which i thought to me it always reminds me of nietzsche's sort of like uh the slave morality or the culture of resentment that happens mm-hmm. you know like I'm good, they're bad, you know, like, like the, mm-hmm. the, he's like, the, the hawk doesn't think that the sheep are bad, he just thinks they're tasty, but the sheep, man, they think the hawk is terrible, because the hawk <laughs> did damage to them, right? right. And so, and they they're go, well, everything that's like a hawk is terrible, and everything that's like a sheep is good, right? And that mm-hmm. creates this weird flipping mm-hmm. of the hierarchy, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's problems with Nietzsche's story, but, you know, but, but I think that the structure, though, kind of gives you an idea of some... Of, of the things we're seeing, right? It's like, um, well, four legs good, two legs bad, right? That's what they. Well, and I mean, does capture really well leftist leftist psychology. I think. Oh, that, I think it's pretty much that that weird liberal sort of psychology, right? And they're recreating a bunch of hierarchies, and so so it's not enough that like you know it's like well it used to be a white guy running a a, a cis straight 
white guy running everything. So now we need a, and it gets all confusing. Well, do you want a trans le lesbian black woman running everything? Or, or I mean, no, no, it no. They have to be black and Latino mix. Yeah. yeah. So, but but would see, it feel better it, when it, you get laid <laughs> off? I mean, it, it just becomes this kind of like uh, uh, we're not getting rid of hierarchy. We're just right. Right. choosing to have a different kind of hierarchy and the 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 sort of funny it not in like a you know but just the funny thing about it is what it does is it, it reinforces this way of thinking that allows things like imperialism right because mm -hmm. you're not doing away with with hierarchy which is what you need to do to do away with mm -hmm. imperialism right mm -hmm. and what is the only thing that does away with hierarchy in this whole toolbox class because mm -hmm. th that's why w when people misunderstand the whole dictatorship of the proletariat thing you know it, it, it's kind of sad because what is a dictatorship of the 99 percent it's a democracy mm -hmm. right you know i mean we, we live in a dictatorship of the bourgeoisie which is the one percent telling the 99 percent what to do you flip it around and all of a sudden the 99 percent is choosing what happens that's, mm -hmm. that's, that's actually the most democratic thing we've ever seen, right? Eventually, that 1% becomes a part of the 99% because you're eliminating class and everyone's in the same socioeconomic class. And now we have a finally a removal of class society, removal of hierarchy. Mm -hmm. And that's the one that they don't want to deal with. They don't with want that, right. Because that's the one that destroys hierarchy. Well, that's the question. Hierarchy, Why? Why it's, do they? It's, why it's are they so reluctant to? It's that? frightening because it's it's mysterious. They don't know. Like it's it's hard to understand the pathway. What what is going to be the result of that dictatorship of the proletariat? Often it's framed as I have to give something up. So if we're talking about the process to getting to the dictatorship of the proletariat, that means like we talked about the eighteen million millionaires with another guy, and the idea is if you're one of those you know, petty bourgeois millionaires, it doesn't matter what level of millionaire you are, you're going to have to give something up. Or if you're like me, you're an American that makes a relatively good wage and you globalize this, people think you have to give something up when that dictatorship of the proletariat is the goal, which is- And that's why socialism is such an abysmal failure because it's usually sold as you have, it's like charity and sharing and you have to make sacrifices instead of, I think the way it would really be the way it ought to be understood and the only way it can succeed is if, you know, people understand that it's in their interest for this to happen. Most people, for most people, it's in their interest. Most people stand to gain. And again, that's the, the that's the big question. Why are upper middle-class PMC liberals so, um, well, I mean, they don't okay understand with the authority, it. the order, instead of changing it, they just want to tweak it. Like you're saying, they, they're fine with hierarchy. They just don't like the particular hierarchy we have. I mean, do they really stand to lose that much? I mean. No, I mean, the reality is, is that that even the most billionaire person in the world, in a sense, would gain from a, from an ending of this madness that we're in. Sure, you won't be able to get on a, on a jet and go wherever you want, whenever you want. But that's not necessarily what freedom for a human being is, right? I mean, here is where the the very early Marx is actually really interesting when he was talking about alienation and that gets kind of dropped, you know, but I think we are all alienated with this system that we're in because so much of our lives is directed 
at either, you know, working for someone else's project to stay alive or at basically having your whole existence revolve around making sure that the people you're oppressing don't rise up against you, right? Mm -hmm. So, so we're all in a sense alienated from our own lives. We're not, we're not living authentic lives, however we want to like say it, right? Like I wouldn't do what I do most of the day every day if I didn't have to worry about the things that I have to worry about, right? I would mm-hmm. do something else. And it doesn't, and the, the funny thing is that in my life, the times I have been the most productive for everyone else, I have been remunerated the least by society. Mm. And the times where I do the most ridiculous work, I get paid the most. Like whenever mm-hmm. I do things that have no value to anyone other than to a rich person, that's when I get paid the most. Whenever mm-hmm. I do things that benefit the most people possible, I get paid the least. That's not by accident. That is how things are structured on purpose. And so that leads to everyone being alienated. You know, like you spend most of your life doing something you don't want to do. That is horrible. Like when you really think about it, it is truly horrible. And so it's not worth it in terms of any real sort of commodities that I'm keeping, you know, to have that be my life. But that's a weird point to try to make. People think, you know, um, that having a lot of stuff is 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 what what makes a good life you know it's a sort of you know consumer consumer culture gets overblown um, but at the same time it is a part of the sort of you know ideological arsenal you guys there yeah we're back um since okay, you're recording we got you, you yeah 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 i was recording but i was i couldn't see you so i didn't it's like mm-hmm. talking to myself it happened to me. I, I did that once. I, I did a radio show a couple of times. And um, and it's really weird when you're doing a radio show and you're alone in the booth because it's almost like you're just mm. talking to yourself. Mm-hmm. It's a very strange well, react. You know, we're feeling. all talking to ourselves in capitalism, I think. Well, as long as the voices don't talk back. Fine. <laughs> so, um, um, so, I mean, I think there's that. I mean, and, and, and that maybe sounds a little bit idealistic, but I think it's actually true. Like, we really are just alienated from our labor and our labor is what we need to do to survive. So we're alienated from our own survival. It's, it's a, it's a sickening situation, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I I think that's a good, like if we want to do closing arguments right now, um, like that's kind of the gist of the, the, the hazards of the, uh, woke discourse and the anti-class analysis that Americans have. Mm. I think we've, um, yeah, I mean this this I will say this this has been a really good conversation, you know, for me. But um I guess I'll start um and go back a little bit and talk about kind of like um when we were talking about cultural appropriation and for me what I've recognized in the black experience of America is that um you know allowing the appropriation of black culture is what saved black people in the United States. When you're talking about a lot of the activists, civil rights activists have always been cultural icons, you know, and us allowing the the proliferation of black culture has been what saved us from a lot of atrocity because we've been deemed that cultural capital has been useful to a lot of people. 
So I don't think the Harlem Renaissance doesn't happen without, you know, jazz, right? Um, the civil rights movement doesn't happen, you know, with, 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 you know, without like Motown, without, you know, people like, um, uh, um, uh, Muhammad Ali, you know? Um, so I think a lot of that cultural capital, when people try to say that it can be appropriated, I would say what is liberating for most people is the appropriation of your culture, because then that allows people to see the value of your culture which allows them to empathize with your culture, which means they want to propagate your culture, which means you have to exist. So, you know, when people are against cultural appropriation, of course, you shouldn't be exploited and you should profit from whatever cultural uh, artifact you're creating or cultural technology you're creating. But when people appropriate it, that's a good thing. You know, it's like, um, what is the saying? Um, like, um, Something I forgot, like imitators. Mm. Um, I'm not. I'm not I'm, sure. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm. I'm. I'm not. I'm not gonna go on with that and fuck up the quote. But you know, basically, if someone's imitating you, then that's imitation a sign is the of best love. form of flattery. Yes. Oh, yeah, yes. Imitation is yes highest form, form of flattery. flattery. Highest form of flattery. There you go. Yeah. So I would say when we're talking about this, this, this wokeness that's going around and how they. It, it, you know, kind of inserts itself in the form of cultural appropriation. That is a hazard for any culture. And I would say uh, stray away from that because, you know, when people appropriate your culture, that's a form of empathizing with your existence as a people, which is very positive because, you know, I like culture. I don't like um, hierarchy mm -hmm. and you don't need hierarchy to maintain culture. Well, that might be a question, but fair enough. We'll leave it there. Um, well, it depends what you mean by hierarchy, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you need, you mean like, because, because, you know, it, it, this is kind of like one of those issues you run into with like, you know, say like anarchists, right? Who have this problem with like there being some sort of like centralized government, you know? And, but that's not the same as the state, right? That's so we can have some kind of, yeah, you can have authority without having power over someone, right? Right. So, 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 so that's, that's the thing, right? We need to have some sort of organizing principle, but that organizing principle does not have to be exploitive and it does not mm -hmm. have to be power based, right? That's, that's where, where we, you know, that's where we start getting into problems because that's what creates class culture. I mean, class society. Um, I would challenge, though, the idea briefly with anarchism, because, I mean, if you look at it quite literally, you know, the A is the privative and RK is the principle, the form that, that governs. And so I think anarchism quite literally is opposed to any governing principle. But I mean, perhaps I'm just, you know. No, but that's what, that's my problem with anarchism, right? Right. That's why right. I'm not an anarchist. That's why, right, right. you know, I'm a, I'm a Marxist and, you know, and, and I believe that there's things such as authority and you know etc um but i guess i think that that's the core thing here with all of this cancel culture stuff is that it's not really in the benefit of the people it's supposedly it's fighting for it's actually just another sort of programming or mechanism in our hierarchy in society in our capitalist society to police people and to keep them sort of to, to basically discipline them, right? And to keep mm -hmm. hierarchy in place. Mm -hmm. And and so it, it's counterintuitive because it's 
attacking the dominant paradigm or creating consciousness or whatever. But it's not really doing that. It's just teaching you like, you don't say this, you know, it's like, you don't make someone better by putting them in jail, right? Like, that's not how that works. And you don't really make someone better by canceling them or you just basically make them more careful about where their voice, the opinions that they have that are not acceptable in polite society. Well, it's that's just not... punitive. What? That's just punitive, right? It's just... Yeah, it's just I mean, punishment only teaches you what not to do. It, it doesn't teach you what to do. Yeah, that's I mean, and, and, and the thing is, it can't really teach you what to do because it's there, put there by people who don't want you to do what you should do, which is end class society and capitalism and establish, you know, <laughs> a society for the proletariat. You know, that's not that's not an acceptable discourse in our society. Working people, that's, to translate it into American English, working people, yeah. right? <laughs> the working people. I mean, you can't even say working class in the, in the Democratic Party. You have to say the the middle class or or, or working families right or right. yeah you, you, because you know saying the worker or or labor i mean that's like you know that's for forbidden because it sounds too much yeah that's racist because all workers are white mm-hmm. well that's that's Black obviously don't, don't work, work. <laughs> i don't work <laughs> well, there's, that's a pretty racist thought right there, right? They're all just uh, welfare queens. It's, it's, such a, it's such an inherently racist position to say that, like, you know, that if you say worker, you mean white people. Like, like and somehow they get away with saying it. Like, no one looks at what they're implying, right? It's like, yeah. well, black people are not working class. It's like, well, are they rich? No. Well, then what are they, you know? It's like, they just don't work, you know? Like, well, it's, I mean, that's what like, the liberals are saying. This is like some of the arguments I've heard uh, fielded against anti-capitalism. I've heard people say things like, well, if you're anti-capitalist, that's implicitly anti-Semitic. And then similarly there, they don't realize quite that what they're saying implicitly is that the the essence of Judaism is capitalism. And and to me, that seems like they're buying into the most terrible anti-Semitic cliché. They, they yeah. sound like Nazis when they say that. Yeah, I mean, that's the most like, anti-Semitic thing you could possibly say. You know, it's like, what are you going to start talking about crooked noses next? I mean, it's yeah. horrible. Yeah. It's absolutely like horrible when they say that. Oh, all bankers are Jews. I mean, that's literally like the attitude. And it's just, but these are the people who are canceling people for saying things. And this is how terrible their position is. And, and, and I, I mean, it, it blows your mind when you really start uh, to, to borrow from their their tradition. When you start deconstructing their language, it really points to a significantly more racist, more sexist worldview. As though there's not a poor Jew or a working class black person. Yeah. And, 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 and there are no... And of course, most are humans no, are poor and work, obviously. And, and, and there are no women who are uh, uh, sexual perpetrators, right? So, which, you know, eliminates mm. all lesbian sexual assaults and et cetera, et cetera, right? So, mm-hmm. I mean, I mean it, it, it basically erases human beings, you know. Just Lane Maxwell really... is uh, innocent. She's a hero. Yeah, I mean, ra- rates of domestic abuse in lesbian couples are about the same as straight couples. But if you say that only men perpetrate, you know, domestic abuse, you've literally eliminated all those women from the discussion of domestic abuse. And you've probably I mean, gotten a job for yourself in the Democratic Party. Yeah, I mean, so so. That's I mean, and, and and you basically can do that with every single identity politics position. And and here's actually one thing that I, I we should always fight against is the when someone one of these people gets all smart and goes, well, 
then class is an identity position too. It's like, no, no, no. Class is not an identity position right. like that at all. At all. It's, because, it, you know, I, I can't stop being Puerto Rican. You can't stop being black and, you know, et cetera. You can stop being in the socioeconomic class you're in, but, but not individually. We can't collectively. Mm-hmm. That's the reality. I mean, because the, then they'll start selling you the, the capitalist story, like of the sort of statistical outlier, you know, oh, well, this guy, you know, LeBron James had no money. And now look at him. It's like, yeah, LeBron James is literally a genetic freak. You know, like mm-hmm. you, you have to be a massive statistical outlier to be able to, to do that kind of leapfrogging, right, mm-hmm. uh, out of your socioeconomic class. But collectively, we could mm-hmm. end class. But there is know? no collective. In the minds yeah. of most people. Yeah, in the minds of a liberal, there is no such thing as society. They're basically like Thatcherites. They're just individuals. And so, I mean, they just That's- want people to bootstrap themselves up. And that means ultimately, at the end of the day, they're okay with massive uh, uh, class inequality. But th- that's because, you know, and this is one of these things where you can get kind of like technical or whatever, but I think it's actually important. It's one of the reasons I, I always kind of resist calling liberals the left because they're not mm. leftist. Liberals and conservatives in the U.S. are pretty much the same thing. Right. Conservatives make sense in Europe when there was something to conserve, like an ancient regime that had a king. In the U.S., conservatives and liberals are both capitalists. They're both for the bourgeois society. No one is saying, let's bring back the queen and have this be a feudalist, you know, sort of land. Mm-hmm. They're, they're all for like enriching the capitalist class, maintaining a market economy that helps the capitalist class. So conservatives and liberals are arguing about cultural war things, but in the end, they want the exact same material conditions, the same society. They just, they, you know, argue about, you know, how to divide the, 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 the proceeds of the exploitation mm-hmm. within mm-hmm. that capitalist society, right? Mm-hmm. But they don't, they're, they're not. So I, I have a I always kind of have a problem with calling any liberal leftist because to me to be a leftist, the first the first you know the the sort of first thing you gotta want is to end capitalism, like just this has got to end. Well, so, but that so, means that the leftists in America aren't leftists. They're not. They're not. To me, they're not. To me, they're just like the left in the U.S. is 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 a sliver. You know, like a, it, it, there's literally like five people. You know five people you know and, and and it reminds me when we first met was one of the first times i was able to say any of the things i'm saying now in public and not get pillared you know like like just destroyed by a bunch of liberals because it was in a room full of marxists right yeah and they yeah. were like yeah no what he's saying makes sense i was like oh my god someone's gonna start saying i'm sexist then mm-hmm. someone's gonna say i'm racist and then someone's gonna you know like yeah at a, for yeah, saying david, just a david harvey a David Harvey yeah. seminar at the at the People's what is it the People's uh, Forum? I, it's a new, in new York thing. I mean, in we've new gotten York. that from Marxists or people who call themselves Marxists too. I mean, personally, me and Daniel have gotten that from Marxists. Yeah, we'll, well have to we'll have to yeah we'll, we'll have, have to have you back. Continue this conversation. Yeah. And invite you yeah, back yeah, on yeah, yeah. to talk about this. But 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 to me, liberals are not the left, right? Because because what they're do their project is just how do we mend capitalism so it can last as long as possible mm-hmm. and that to me is not a leftist project that to me is mm-hmm. very much an oppressive exploitative imperialist you know proto-fascist you know because I- invariably when you need to restructure society you need to get that fascist authoritarian regime in place 
you restructure society, and then you can kind of go back to operating in the fake freedom and democracy, right? Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. that's my take on that. Anyway, I, I, I guess I've talked too much. I'm sorry. No, no, it's good. So <laughs> Thaddeus also already kind of made his closing comment. I'll make a closing comment trying to wrap uh, round a few things out, and then we'll leave the last comment to you. Closing comment. <laughs> so, All right. so um, I want to pick up a few, on a few things. Um, I wouldn't have brought it up, but it came up. So cultural appropriation. And on that issue, I would want to say like, so maybe you take these as you can have the last word on these topics or anything else you want to say. It seems to me that um, with respect to that question, and, and that's a prominent sort of topic on the so-called left in the United States, it seems to me that either you, either you do the political econ economy, so you take up the political economic task and you take that seriously and literally appropriation, and you deal with exploitation, commodification in the way that the people's mores and behaviors are made into economic sources of profits or or you take the compliment as you were saying like imitation is the biggest compliment the the highest form of flattery and and so i would mean that as a sort of invitation to so-called leftists to to take the political economic issue seriously uh, the class issue and then and then secondly, I mean, we ended up talking about the so-called national question, and um, we didn't really get to go into it as much as I'd like to. Maybe we can in the future. At one point, um, Marco, you said, um, you know, nationalism had a progressive phase, and now it's in its reactionary phase. And I think this is really interesting. Um, at one point, you even said um, the American South is almost a distinct nation. Um, and it seems to me that... Um, I mean, this is just something that's taboo. You're not allowed to talk about nationalism in any in any respect, which is not um, you're not allowed to talk about it except as something reactionary. But we see, obviously, if you look at history, um, for instance, I, one thing I've recently been reading about is in um, Germany in the 18th and 19th century, you had all these little fiefdoms ruled by a bunch of dukes and um, you know princes and stuff. And in that context, the struggles for German unification, there were nationalist struggles based on culture and language. And there are all kinds of problems, you know, these people, I'm not saying they're good people, but necessarily because, you know, there was sort of proto-fascist stuff mixed in, but not all of it. And so the point is there that the national struggle was the struggle to expropriate a bunch of land-holding monarchs. And so in that context, national unity meant establishing a national republic and expropriating a bunch of feudal oligarchs and, you know, struggles of national liberation and so forth. Puerto Rico, we talked about, for example, but the left used to talk about um, national struggles and it didn't just regard nationalism as reactionary. Obviously, the way it plays out in the States when we use nationalism is reactionary. But the last thing then is where we started off with taking offense and you talked about alienation and resent, uh, resentment, um, the, the prevalence of alienation and resentment in contemporary American society. And it seems to me that taking offense can only be understood in that context where, you know, if you, if you so much as bring up these sticky issues, which are, you know, when you bring the issue up, it, what you do is present a person with an, an enormous problem that no individual can confront. It's just overwhelming. I'd be tempted to say that taking offense is a kind of defense mechanism. It's inherently defensive. Like it's, you know, it's passive really when you take offense. What you're say what you're saying is 
you know, you're an aggressor and I'm a victim or something. It's, it's very, it's pathetic in the technical sense, you know? And so it's interesting. I'd like to hear your thoughts close and in closing, like, it seems to me that taking offense is a, isn't just an individual reaction to a statement that a person finds difficult to deal with. It actually is a piece of the, of the problem. Um, piece of the social problem because it reinforces certain aspects of hierarchies and so forth but i'll just stop there and leave you the last word all right um let me see this is like a hydra i don't know which one of the all the heads i, I want to deal with um so when you were saying that taking offense is passive the word that came to my mind is that it's 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 reactive right um, because it is, it, and I don't mean to, you know, be difficult, but it, it's not passive because it's literally someone going after you like a mob to kill you. Right. I mean, and, and, and I don't feel bad for, for people who say stupid things, you know, being attacked or whatever, like whatever that, that, that's, you know, part of life in like a weird community that we're in where everything is ultra public, but at the same time. It's reactive because a lot of the times it, it's not a thought through reaction to what the person does. It is literally like a chemical reaction. It's just like you just got pushed in a certain button and you're just going to go at it with not even bothering to think what the person said, you know, because there are things that are in a sense offensive, but at the same time, it's not wrong to say them. You know, in a weird way, you know, like, because you can be offended by something that's not wrong. I mean, and that's fine. We're complicated entities, human beings. And, and, and so you don't have a right to go after that person. The other thing about this cancel culture that we didn't mention, and it's a really important issue, is that the first thing they go after is the person's livelihood. It's the first fucking thing they go after. They're like, I'm going to dox this guy and I'm going to contact his boss. And I'm going to cost him his job. That's the first fucking reaction. Now, if, if that's not a sign that there's some kind of class, like, you know, treason going on here. In order to benefit the, the sort of uh, uh, the capitalist class. I don't know what, what, what could possibly serve in a, as an example. I mean, there's so much in, our, in the culture that is littered in order to allow the, the boss to discipline the worker. And this can actually be turned into another example of that, right? I mean, like, like the customer is always right is another example of that, right? Everyone knows the customer is not always right. You've always, anyone who's been in any kind of retail situation knows that customers say insane shit. I mean, I'm an attorney. My clients say crazy things and I'm like, don't do that. That is stupid, you know? And they still do it. And then two months later, they come back. Oh my God, I should have done what you told me to do. I know what you did was stupid and I told you not to do it. You know, and now you made a mess. So, so everyone knows the customer or the client or whatever it is, is not always right. But why do we say that? Because it gives the boss an excuse to fire you if they need to. You did something the customer didn't like, you're fired. Okay, so, so then cancel culture becomes anything that allows you to attack someone within a capitalist society is going to become a weapon for the capitalist to use against the worker. Anything. Because they are the ones who have power. They are the ones who can project force. So if we have a cancel culture, your boss is going to be able to use that cancel culture mm -hmm. 
to discipline you, to fire you. Even it's just it's just another weapon in their arsenal. Mm-hmm. So so in that sense, we can kind of see how it, it gets articulated into more weapons in the pocket of you know class war. You know, and, and we're losing big time. Like, you know, the capitalists are just kicking our ass, you know, and they've been doing mm-hmm. that for the last mm-hmm. 50 years, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So ever since, you know, there's, there's that really good article, uh, Neoliberalism is a Political Project that uh, David Harvey interviewed mm-hmm. that he did for, I think it's Jacobin. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and he talks about a lot of this stuff. Um, so... So yeah, taking offense. Um, did I talk about what you wanted me to talk about? I am, I'm, I'm, I don't know if I answered your question. I feel terrible about it. So yeah, I, I enjoyed this very much. Um, it's nice talking to people and who, who are not going to immediately attack you because you don't, you know, necessarily believe the standard party mm-hmm. line um and it, this can be off the of the record if you want it's uh it, it's always you know really interesting when you talk about racial stuff in a cross-racial sort of environment because there is a level of trust necessary mm-hmm. that is difficult to have you know um and difficult to curate you, you know with with it's not until I become friends, like say with a black person that I ever bring any of these topics because mm-hmm. every black person I know has been in the position where a friend has done some fucked up shit to them that they were not expecting and then they got hurt, you know, in a way that is not fair. And it happens to Puerto Ricans too. I mean, like it happens to me with other weird shit. So, so it's a very strange, you know, it's difficult. It's very difficult to talk about this stuff. So I get like why people can be reactive, you mm-hmm. know, and I get why people can get emotional and not think. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that that's what's operating. I think most of the time when people have these sort of mm-hmm. cancel culture moments and these woke moments, mm-hmm. because they're not reacting to a personal offense. They're not reacting to to something that happened in, in, a, in a, an intimate environment. Mm-hmm. They're literally going after someone in public for something mm-hmm. that did not attack mm-hmm. them directly. Mm-hmm. So there's a very different thing going on. Yeah, they're not going after a person. Actually, they're acting according to a script. And I think you nailed it. Like, it's difficult to talk honestly about these things with, you know, for different people with different backgrounds to talk honestly because there's a degree of vulnerability and and a degree of acceptance which sort of goes beyond the comfort zone and it because it's so difficult i think the managerial attitude is you know we don't want to go there because it's too risky it's too costly it it's might bad be offensive. For business right because they're thinking about it from a business perspective and so the script that gets written is just avoid it and, and if anyone and if anyone sort of breaches the code of conduct then they will just be liquidated and, and terminated and so I mean, that's why it's and that that's a remnant of of 90s sort of like naivete or capitalist you know invincibility like you know like i think it was michael jordan saying well you know republicans buy sneakers too you know like this sort of like we have to put this (laughs) economic thing ahead of other things and and yeah it's it's uh it's still operating is the thing you know even when people think they're being super like um 
what's the, when, when they think they're really doing God's work for, for racial equality, because they're operating from a space of like radical liberalism, they're not. They're actually reinforcing the dominant paradigm and that can never lead to the emancipation of anyone because the dominant paradigm is one of exploitation. <laughs>